Hi, Arafat. Hi, AR. How are you? I am okay. How are you? Good. Good, thanks. I know you just came off another podcast recording just before this, so I hope you're not all podcasted out. I'm not. I'm not. I am very excited about this. Uh -huh. I'm very excited about same, this. Same, same, because yeah. uh, you do a lot of things. Hmm. You do a lot of things. Yeah, I do a lot of things. Uh, I'm just going to quickly list them, and I'm sure I'm going to miss a lot of things as well, but you are the co-founder of Sorch. Yeah. You are yeah. the co the a founder of Puffball Studios, which is an animation studio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you've also which recently released its first animated yeah. film in Pakistan called Shahid the Bassam. Yeah. Yeah. And uh Hashia is also is that how you Hashia. Hashia. Hashia, sorry. It's an online platform about history like Pakistan history. Yeah. yeah. What, and then Sherry Pakistan, which Shari is civic Pakistan. education, and the big the umbrella is Engage, which is the think tank. It's the research organization which started everything. Oh, but so that's the big overarching. That's the first thing. overarching. Yeah, yeah. What came first? Engage came first, mm -hmm. but uh, before Engage, I basically have a computer science degree, and Engage essentially is a interdisciplinary research organization. Mm -hmm. So I'm at Mosiki first talking about like an it's basically ended up being an academic research organization only more relevant to uh, local conflicts. Right, right. And what came first in a way was, uh, I had a software consultancy that I started when I was 19, and then Salman Tassir was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And that was like a turning point in my life because me and a friend of mine, Zan Malvi, the ex-bassist for Porridge Boy, uh, who's doing his PhD now, we decided to go do uh, tons of research on uh, the blasphemy law. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, a couple of years down the line, Engage was formally uh, formed up. And from there, and there's a long story ahead. Okay, wait, that, that's a big jump. You were a consultant, a software consultant? Okay, so here, here okay, if, if, we are, if we have to do this right, Jamais, so when I'm 16, mm -hmm. I am being trained to be the next leader for Jamaat. For Jamaat Islami, mm -hmm. because I come uh, from a family of Jamaat Islami uh, leadership, and I've grown up in a very conservative household. I've grown up as a very conservative kid who thought music is haram, film is haram, everything is haram. Mm -hmm. And then I fall in love, mm -hmm. and then I realize, hey, I want to learn music because I can't seem to express what I feel in words. So I learned a bit of music, and then uh, dramatic things happen, and that is taken away from me because. I come from a conservative, lower middle class background at that time. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to make shit ton of money. And so <laughs> this is second semester of college. Yeah. So uh, I'd start a software consultancy. Where did you go to college? Fast, fast lower. Okay. Yeah. And I was so, uh, and I was good at it. I was good as an entrepreneur. Uh, I was doing uh, interesting work, but uh, even some would call meaningful because I was into uh, AI, data mining, and inventory. Uh, predictions, all kind of things that seem like centuries away now. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think I knew that I wanted to retire by 30. That was the goal and do what I really wanted to do. And at that time, I wanted to do some welfare work, quote unquote, mm -hmm. just in a very abstract sort of way, because I've seen my parents do it their whole life. But I was also changing from coming from someone from Jamia, then turning into growing into my own person. And then that incident happened, Salman Tasir versus Mumtaz Qadri. And all of a sudden, I see my parents uh, endorsing what Qadri did. And I can't figure it out. I can't figure out what, how could love look like this? How could love for the Prophet have violence in it? Mm. And that started everything, including every film, every venture starts from there. My need to 
resolve my inner anxiety. I create a better relationship with how do I relate to my parents? How do I relate to this mitti? How do I relate to the people? How do I do I call them all barbaric, violent people, or do I figure it out? So that's when we uh, got together. We wrote an academic paper, got published in a humanities journal. They made an exception for us, even though I was from computer science. He was doing law. Uh, I got offered a PhD program, but I decided that I'm going to formalize this as a process, what we did. And that's what Engage was. Now, once we were done with our first project, which was with Princeton on the blasphemy law, the report ended up being 400 pages long. And I was like, no one's going to read this. Like, that's the whole problem with the uh, development sector and academia. It's not accessible. And that's when animation came in, because I wanted to animate what was in the report, make it accessible. So we enacted parliamentary session from the 80s. And that's when I decided that we also need Urdu uh, content that, that is accessible. So we're talking about human rights and somehow this, something very arrogant about the idea that why don't you know what human rights are F to someone in a seminary or, in a, or, or, or even in a school when there's no uh, nothing available in Urdu on any right. civic rights issue. Hmm. So that's where Shehri started. And that's where my interest in design also started. Meanwhile, musician was, music was my first love, so I was scoring things just for myself. And so uh, Shahidi and Engage was going in parallel, and that's when I wanted to do some, the same thing that I did with Shahidi. It blew up, we have a million followers, it was doing well. I also wanted to do the, the same thing for history that we did for civic education. That's where Hashia came in. Somewhere down the line, I uh, had this genre of filmmaking in mind that what we're doing is we're sort of, we were also monitoring hate speech for certain organizations around the world to figure out what does it look like online. So the, at the intersection of a very radical Islam and the, at the intersection of technology and fascist government came a series of stories that uh, we call cyber khilafat, cyberpunk or cyber khilafat in our case, okay, what are our anxieties? And that's where Sherit Abbasum was born out of. And so mm. we decided to have a separate studio that would do high-end animation, hand-drawn, would be puffball, and all the motion work would be separate with Sherry Pakistan. So that's how Sherry the Basum was uh, released. And I got to do the score for that, which was a dream for me. Mm. Wanted to do a score for a film. No one was going to hire me. I can always hire myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's that, how I like to work as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so that was yeah. fun. So, and now Swipe, which is going to come in in a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, and Soch Videos was basically just, uh, I co-founded it, but I'm not, uh, I can't credit myself for the great work that they're doing from time to time because I don't, I'm not handling the operations. Mm -hmm. But everything else is in Lahore and it's just one big team. It's an excellent team. COVID happened, but I think we, we it was an exceptional time still, yeah. So there's a couple of things I'm interested in just yeah. right off the bat, but as this is a Mosiki podcast, yeah. And you said your first love was music in some ways because you couldn't, it was the forbidden fruit in some way. So what what, what was your first experience with music coming mm -hmm. from a conservative background? So obviously there were these ideas in my head that um, I came from a very severely patriarchal family, that this is what women should look like. This is the role of a man, woman. Um, so music was one of those things that it's haram. It was very clear to me that it's haram. And I was an intelligent kid. And so I had figured it out in my head why it is Haram as well. Uh, so there were two television channels allowed at our place, which was BBC and uh, CNN. So my parents are from uh, Bangladesh, East Pakistan. So they're not have good Urdu at all. So English is something that we were always taught and they knew as well. So uh, CNN, BBC, uh, whenever the sound IDs would come in, 
that was the first thing that I would feel like that's music you're listening to it sounds pretty cool especially BBC what the intro jingle of BBC yeah yeah and, and it's it a was, banger yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and I was like it's a melody there's got it's got rhythm and it yeah. gets you excited it's stimulating why are you listening to it and it doesn't yeah. seem it and then some documentaries uh, and documentaries would have exceptional especially nature documentaries sometimes with exceptional soundscapes and yeah ambience yeah ambience yeah and so my first love was with soundscape like music and ambient music because i think it also felt more kosher that mm. you know there's no lyrics in there yeah, there's it's no halal beats. there's no beat yeah. seems more halal more nature like but i think uh, so that was my first you don't get like hip hop while like yep, documentary yeah <laughs> you're not going to get on the dance floor <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah to 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 a documentary soundtrack yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but um i what i realized was that there was intuitively i mean i had no musical training i could create things in my head so at that time i didn't have any training i figured i have something to say i have a voice and it's authentic it's in my head so i would spend half an hour just thinking in my head that this is not now this instrument comes in because by that time I didn't know what an orchestra is what does a cello sound like and uh, now this instrument comes in and I had a lot of fun with that but it's only when I fell in love is when things really you know took shape because I think overall I figured out okay there's this can't be wrong this mm. what I want to say cannot be wrong and that wasn't an intellectual decision it was an intuitive very clear decision so I I think remember the first thing that I wrote uh, in my college a lot of seniors were musicians including Zulfi so Zulfi came to me and I said I have this melody in my head and I was singing it to him was like that's a very nice melody was like I don't know how I don't have an instrument he's like use your laptop so he installed free loops for me and he gave me a few samples and I said I want a tabla as well so he gave me a few tabla samples so I remember the first thing that I wrote was just a few piano melodies with a tabla and it was really easy to write on something that's a template already for you it's on a 4 by 4 it was pretty nice i showed it to him it was like it's very good so that's how it started and partly i think when i was like i'm going to make some music one of the first things was i'm going to make my own recording studio just so that for myself i can make some music i was pretty clear that it's not probably going to be something i'm professionally going to be able to pursue i did get into a couple of bands the rising and topi drama which is open up for a few uh acts here and there but that's how it started and I kept it for my family for a very long time and uh I think eventually music was the least of their concerns when when I started doing work on blasphemy that was a but much more of an antagonistic right. thing but by now they're pretty uh they've accepted that uh at least whatever he has to say is authentic even if we disagree with it even right. the music and that the music doesn't have any fahashi in it <laughs> you know it, it's not it doesn't sound like something like that guys and girls are going to get it on with it's, yeah, it's, yeah yeah it's pretty grim it can still score a nature documentary even now yeah <laughs> yeah yeah although i don't show them everything so i i have a I, i have a huge love for funk music and so we do a lot of jams at at the office so mm. they don't know that side of it right right yeah so what why do you think the salman tasir incident had such a big impact on you because i i i I've always have and continue to love the prophet a lot. So I was like, "Eh, main aashiq rasool hu. Mujhe ishq hai, mujhe pyar hai, mujhe mohabbat hai." So if I love that person that that and they are telling me that there's only one way to love and I think fundamentally one thing that stays to this day and is informed even both the films, the documentary that we're doing is the corruption of expression and language the idea that i could see that 
violence was being uh, there was something very insidious hidden under violence that violence was uh, veiled under this idea of an ethical good honor killing ishqir rasool violence it was almost orwellian already like how could violence be honorable how could you kill someone for love and for me that anxiety a of what's going on b of my identity that no i want to be a musician i want to be an ally i want to be these these things most importantly i want to be able to call myself an ashiq rasool and condemn this person in this act how do i do that so i was working with human rights activists but at a personal level and at and at an academic level i also then pursued the history of islamic jurisprudence and figured out that we've pretty much been lied to for the past 30 years and that's the central thesis of a very systematic way of the way uh, powers that be have obfuscated uh, the reality of our history and tradition the islamic legal tradition and twisted it at various instances and to now there's only one way in pakistan that you could love i felt like the whole of so i uh, i grew grew up in iqbal town mujhe laga pura iqbal town was just filled with anxiety ke mai puri tarike se i'm not in agreement with what has happened but no gustakhir rasool ki ek hi sada sartan se juda sartan se juda at the same time they're going to say it so that anxiety overall i felt like there's something behind it and i want to resolve it uh, but that i think that's why it had a huge effect on it, it was a it was a it was a huge shift for the whole community for the whole country mm, i mean mm. last election was pretty much you know uh, fought on these ideas right. you know who loves the prophet more mm. i mean if i open a pawn shop which is like mumtaz qadri pawn shop main to crorepati ban jaunga you know it's like it's it's very easy to use these language and these expressions and uh, corrupt it mm. and that's why i shared about some the idea of a smile which is a beautiful thing Love. Can you explain the the plot briefly of Sherat? Yeah, Basum? so Sherat Basum is a dystopian animated film uh, set in 2071, and it's a film. It's a it's it's a Pakistan that has seen civil war, and they're finally uh, in a uh, in a time of peace. And however, they have only one regulation uh, on an expression, which is you're only allowed to smile, and any other expression other than smile is uh, criminalized. And for me. it was an allegory to what we are experiencing right now with love and honor beautiful things that have been corrupted and when you when you force one word to hold only one meaning then no matter how beautiful that idea is if love cannot mean or oh, plant a tree um dance uh, the sufuf way the sufi way of love or musician it only means one thing it will become an instrument of control hmm. similarly smiling it's a beautiful idea but if you force it to hold one meaning of loyalty and gratitude then it becomes an instrument of control so that was the allegory and the principle the idea behind which like i felt like i cannot talk about it directly mm. but what this genre allows me to do is uh, is maybe explore our anxieties and that was very important it should be about us there's right. not about japanese anxieties so it's not the cyberpunk anxiety of technology just no no it's the cyberpunk anxiety of which is why we call it cyber khilafat okay the anxieties that we experience at a time of great strife and uh, great uh, clamp down of expression in the name of religion and love of prophet love of nation love of the state so yeah so that's how the smile uh, becomes an allegory to love and honor and all forms of expression that if you want no matter how beautiful that expression is you can corrupt it by confining it to only one meaning 
Mm. While we're on the subject of animation, do you want to qu- also quickly talk about Swipe? Because that's uh, yes. all of these things in one. Yeah. So Swipe is, I'm very excited about Swipe. So Swipe is also, for me, a cyberpunk film in the sense it's high, uh, high tech, low life. And uh, like it's, a, it's, however, set in contemporary day Multan. So it's a much more grittier, realistic take on the city. The only fictional element is that uh, there is an app called iFatwa. And what happens is that people can crowdsource fatwas. So they send a case and it comes to your phone and you swipe right for Wajib al and you swipe left for Mafi. Mm-hmm. And started the initial premise, I came to the office, I was like, you know what, we're going to make a film. For, it's, a, it's Tinder for Muftis. And, but the thing is, it gets out of hand for Muftis and children get addicted to it. So that's mm. the premise of the film. It becomes a game and there's oh, a Hajar board okay. and there's a Ghazi board and children want to become Ghazis through that app. So it's gamified. And right. it becomes a mockery of what it was meant to be. So it is uh, an animated film, hand-drawn again, uh, beautifully hand-painted. Uh, it, it looks beautiful. I, that I can say very confidently. Narratively speaking, we'll figure out once it's done how people respond to it. Uh, it's going to be out on 31st. Uh, it's going to be out. October, yes. Oh, soon. Yeah, it's going to be out on YouTube, no festivals. So it's not for white people to watch it for a year, year and a half before our own people see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still submit. We will still submit it to festivals who allow non-premiered festivals. But uh, white people, films. you can still watch it. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. If you must, but like it's for first and foremost, it's like the, the accessibility part is crucial for us. Mm. So it's going to be out. Uh, we can do the screenings. We did a lot of screenings for Sharita Basum across universities. That was fantastic. The discussions were fantastic. It was very refreshing. We won't, for COVID, we can't do that, but we might do virtual screenings. We're thinking of doing a gorilla screening as well. Let's see, mm-hmm. like take a truck and let's see about mm-hmm. that as well. But uh, there is the theme, there is a theme that still moves forward, that of corruption of language and expression. It's only the other way around. So why do someone gets to decide that love and honor can mean only one thing? And then that becomes instrument of control. But there's an extreme opposite of it. And this, this is a, a linguistic study as well, so it's research proven as well, that if you allow a word to hold infinite meanings, so if you're a blasphemer, or if you are a traitor, that anybody can say, you know what, you spilled tea, that's blasphemy because God, that's, that's nemat kharab kar So the idea that you allow anyone to interpret anything as any, those extremes are defined by this segment of the society, and so we felt as a team, we want to have say something about it. That's that's a scream of 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 either agreement, okay, yeah. passionate agreement. Yeah. But but so it's also a, a live studio audience. Is completely yeah, yeah. I, I think that's an endorsement. I would take that. As yeah, an yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so uh, Swipe would be out 31st. And I think I think if nothing else, I think it, it's a very authentic, very courageous voice of the whole team collaboratively and we're projecting very confidently where our voice is just there sorry dude that's okay that's all right that's okay usually doesn't happen <laughs> i imagine because i uh, i, I uh, I've, I've seen most of your interviews yeah yeah there should be like a plug-in like baby voice remover just a DSR yeah 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 exactly <laughs> it just removes all mm-hmm. the removes the babies yeah <laughs> all the annoying babies are out remove the babies that sounds like children of men and and uh, Margaret Margaret yeah handmaid's tale yeah 
What did you have to do? What did you do? He comes back looking like shell shock. Uh, like, what about that? I had to do what I had to do. <laughs> you told me to deal with it. Um, it's interesting because you said about Sherit Tawassam, or actually before that, you said that you wanted to set up an animation studio so that you could talk about these hmm. issues without... while kind of doing it to, in a creative way. But hmm. Swipe sounds incredibly direct. Yes. Uh, that, so that was the initial idea. <laughs> the initial idea was, number one, that everything that we're doing is so intellectual. Shari Pakistan is so intellectual. Uh, it's just ideas put forward. Hashia is ideas put forward. Even though that's much more passionate. But there was a lot of dispassionate work happening. And there was a lot of pent-up sentiment, I think, in the whole team, because the whole team is very passionate about it, that we need to tell stories that are fictional and that, that has more of our gut in it than like analytically. So that was one. And number two was, oh, there are ways to talk about these things without being completely direct about it. I think by the time the uh, idea of Swipe came up, there are a few things which allows us to not make it completely about, because it isn't. There are many ways in which people um, commit acts of violence and decide, become judge, jury, and executioner. Um, you know, you have your art march and there's one play card and everybody, it almost becomes like a democratization of who gets to be the good woman, who gets to be the bad woman. So in a way, it's, it is something about what the screen does to you. So there are things that people call them, for example, in this case, Aurat March, that if they were in front of them and there were people around them, they would never say it. Something that the screen does, yeah. that the film kind of explores as well. And also mob violence is more of a thing than, but it is more direct. I mean, But you're yeah. not that interested in the, in the technological aspect of it, or are you? I'm interested in context. So I do have, I don't have tech phobia at all, but I do have a feeling the printing press in the early 20th century, late 19th century did a lot of terrible things for um, radical Islam. It kind of created a lot of reasons for violence in South Asia. So academically, it's been studied as well. So it was a piece of technology that was misused. So if you wanted to write someone's Vajibul Qatl, you had to write it, handwrite it. So this community is Vajibul Qatl, this is the kitab. Now, if you have printing press, you can print it a thousand times mm. and it's easier. So that was a milestone in modernity taking over Islam and bringing violence out of it. And I feel like Twitter and social media has done that too much. I've seen it happen too much. I've written papers about it. So I do have that fear that at the intersection of technology and people out for blood when they just need a reason for it or thought leaders, political leaders using, they can use that in that. So I am interested in that, but uh, in this context, which is why ideally, because we want to do a feature length film for Tabassum as well, we want to do multiple stories I have in mind that explores this idea of technology, radical Islam, and fascist element. So, but in context, in general, technologies what allows us to do what we do. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested in what you're saying about love and violence. I think that's a really interesting aspect of it. Because it was, I'll be honest, the first time, <clears throat> the first time that I saw Sharit Wasam, I kind of thought it was a, a co I mean, obviously it, it can be, it's open to multiple interpretations, yeah. but I thought it was a commentary on like late capitalism in the sense that we're all expected to be happy, productive, you know, individuals. And that's what it's sort of, uh, that constant pressure just essentially does feel like you're being forced to smile. But your point about it being like this relationship between love and violence, 
don't you think that that's something that has always been a part of like any culture from from the beginning there's always this idea of love being associated with violence because passionate love is like i would do anything for this love yes i would ki- i would be killed mm. i would kill for it yeah i will do anything and those kind of things are interlinked it might be a shame but it it does they feel connected mm. i mean so to, uh, for the two things number one for tabassum uh we received and for every member of the team i don't want to hijack like at the end of the day there are multiple layers of meaning so yet yeah, there was a lot of critique on capitalism and there was a lot of critique on surveillance and uh, we received multiple interpretations from people on on body politics of feminism on on toxic positivity all of those things uh and just state big state control in general uh so that was like where i was coming from and doesn't have to take away from anybody's experience but you're right so here's the thing the the very passionate love that we talk about and a lot of times we talk about very immaturely without a lot of self awareness there is this term limbic hijack which uh, the limbic the, the hijack limbic hijack there's this buddhist idea uh so the limbic primal part of our brain which experiences sentiments and emotions uh that go back way back at our fear uh, flight and fight times when we were just surviving mm. that we still have that where we are reacting and not responding so you know the pa- act of passionate murder is a reaction it's not a response it's not hey i need to have a conversation with you i cannot be with you anymore you slept with another person that's a response the reaction is you kill someone so it's always been like that i agree with you the thing is how things get scaled up in all of these things so even when the printing press came in we did have a lot of misuse of fatwas before that you have examples of that all the time but there's only so much you could have done and that then printing press came and it scaled up now love on its own already in south asia has a history of honor killing and you know and it gets scaled up even more when you have online internet oh this model did this and all of a sudden she is our woman to do something violent uh, and violence obviously does not have to be just physical linguistically violent in case of when it becomes love for not even god because people don't do a lot of uh, pakistani people especially don't commit a lot of act of violence for love for god they do it for the prophet a lot and there's a huge history for it so for that i think is very specific to our culture because you go to marrakesh you go to jordan you go to Tur- uh, turkey you go to egypt and the way and you go to 50 years before in pakistan uh, forget 50 nusrat fatih ali khan uh, singing what he would sing and, and imran khan with amitabh bachchan coming and say it again and those lyric being pretty pretty radical forget him think iqbal coming in with shikwa and think think him reading it right now something unique has been happening over the past 25 years it's not organic it's where it has happened very systematically so the love for the prophet becoming violent in a very specific way is very unique to our culture and different cultures are experiencing these anxieties in different ways so the white man right now in america is experiencing his anxieties in a very different way in the 60s they experienced it in a very different way uh there is a manufactured anxiety or oh, these secular liberal people are going to come in and they're going to change your life and all of a sudden they're like oh my god we're not going to let that happen and then they're going to do ev- they're going to put everything about oh what they're doing is is not is anti-state and anti-islam that's all you need to say quote and quote love and which is why love itself is not necessarily a virtue in itself a lot of horrific things have happened in history because of it but because i think there's a lack of awareness of how and what 
the gentleness and tenderness and kindness that should be associated with love and that i think comes with emotional awareness and maturity that where do you end and where does this start so mm. when you commit violence uh, are you really doing it for the profit uh, who are you offended for uh because when you ask them they'll say his honor nothing can happen to his honor but we will take revenge so what are, what is that need and that need is a limbic hijack the anxiety that you experience the violence that you experience inside you do not know how to process it and then the reaction you have given them a million ways to react in a violent way in, in, instead of giving channeling a platform or a way here's how you can respond instead of react and other communities are responding other muslim communities are responding uh even when salman rushdie came out with a uh, pretty blasphemous not as blasphemous as people made out to be booked back in 89 iran was the one and pakistan was the one that was like really out there mm. a lot of other muslim communities had different ways of dealing with that anxiety so i would say as universal as it is yeah there we've been hijacked our limbic systems have been hijacked by this you know uh yeah this group of religious activists state elements and just people who have something to 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 benefit from uh people killing each other and because then stakes are high you'll get votes stakes are high you'll get money stakes are high you'll get power that's how it is i mean that part's as universal as it goes i read a book recently and it was about uh drone warfare and it was, i think it was a, a, i think he was french but i'm not sure who the philosopher was but he was talking about the idea of um sacrifice and how it's being presented now in in culture so the white man mm. will present all of a sudden after having a history of cultural uh culturally showing uh sacrifice as this very incredibly noble thing right mm. they have a, the whole christ symbology as well so sacrifice in menubi is something that's mm. very noble um they've now flipped it and shown mm. it to be actually very selfish mm. and um what's the word you know like a coward cowardly thing yeah. to do whereas over here you know in no way am i i just want to say this in no way am i endorsing endorsing it. or yeah. justifying it. i'm just interested in the philosophy of it that mm. uh something like a suicide bombing here yeah. or is perceived as you know i would die for this cause yeah, yeah. and on the other side you have drone warfare yeah. which is the most disembodied you can get away from violence right yeah. you can apply violence with a touch of a button yeah. it will happen without any loss of life from your own side yeah. so on one hand you have i will obliterate myself for this yeah. on the other hand you will be like as far away from the violence as possible yeah. yeah it's just interesting to me the way the violence is now the way that it's being perceived in culture especially with regards to love or with regards to dedication to a cause right yeah um the more that you distance yourself from the violence yourself personally right yeah i mean i know we're not talking about like blasphemy is not about sacrifice it's about killing someone else yeah but it's it, do you think that the reason it happens is because of it feels authentic so it is a bizarre question but you know no no i it's a very good question actually it's actually a very good question because it hits the right points of what the claims have been so number one this has never been a need in our culture for centuries it hasn't been a need up until a real need up until 1986 the need to the need to protect kill. and then kill to protect sure and in elaborating on that need um our parliamentarians and then judiciary they flat out lied to us consistently changed texts so for example if a text said um you will not kill someone for insulting the prophet they will remove the not from it consistently happened that's really 
Oh yeah, that's the that was the first research that uh, you have hundred plus examples, and every example in the parliament and every example in judiciary in 1991 when passing the law, they would use texts which were saying you will not kill a non-Muslim if they insult the prophet because they already are given protection of life and property based on beliefs that are blasphemous. For example, and this is I'm citing uh, uh, as verbatim as possible, a Zoroastrian says God has an opposite. This is more blasphemous than insulting the prophet because it's about the God. We don't kill them for that. If we don't kill them for that, we will not kill them for insulting the prophet. Ranging from that, they cited texts which actually said give them a verbal warning. If they do it again, you can punish them, but you can't kill them. They use those texts to say, these texts say kill everyone. And they, okay. they said it in 86, they said it in 91, they continue to say it over the past 15 years. So, and this is what your research has been Yeah, in. and they're on engagepakistan.com with examples, with citations, they would change, remove the Arabic word la. So it's, no it's, way. Yeah, yeah, even verbally speaking. So I, we have videos in which someone has a text and say la yaktulu. So you will not kill. They would remove the word la. So you will kill. Oops. Yeah, oops, right? So, and that was, the, that. this is the fifth most read article on Dawn in the history of Dawn.com, uh, the untold story of Pakistan's blasphemy law, in which the first part that I wrote, in which I put this forward, but the more elaborate report is on the website. But the reason I'm coming to this, and we could come back to this if you need to later, because there's a very good, um, there's a, the, the thesis people can find very easily written as well. And there are videos as well. There's animation. We made an animation on that parliamentary, ex exposing the parliamentary proceeding, which text they cited in the parliament. And, we, and that was our first animated film, quote unquote. And we showed how that was the text and they misquoted it, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that you said about sacrifice. Now, the rhetoric around 86, and if you start reading texts, which we read a lot after Rushdie's text, has been about for the love of the prophet, I'm ready to give my life. The moment when it comes down to it, you'll burn villages, you'll burn communities of the downtrodden and the weak, invariably. Nothing very sacrificial about that, A. B, but they still use that that language and that archetype as the Ghazi, as the martyr a lot. But when it comes down to it, they will spend millions of rupees on making sure that they don't get the death penalty. So if Ilmuddin was there uh, before partition, uh, he was our, one of the first people who went ahead and killed someone. Now he said, I did it so that, I, you know, but then why fight so hard to get a reprieve? The same happened with Qadri. Like, he really wanted to not be hanged. He didn't want to sacrifice his life. He wanted to kill. And I didn't want him to die. Because A, I sympathize with his son. I still do. He's one of my biggest motivating factors that we're failing his son. He goes to every jalsa. And he's going to turn into Qadri because I can't connect with him. He's surrounded by people. So we're failing him as a system. We're failing the children. Uh, which is what Swipe is about as well. Failing children. But Qadri also did not want to die and so there's nothing virtuous about this form of sacrifice on the other hand if there's an olympics of the least of the the ugliest form of violence it probably go to that the dispassionate button kill whoever you want to kill a bit of collateral sure there is still something honorable about a fight which is fair fight but then again in suicide bombing there's so much collateral it's still not like a 
you know, old-fashioned war. It's still something in which there's a collateral. And um, a lot of the times, psychologically speaking, these are people who are reacting and coping and they're kidding themselves. It's self-deception that I'm sacrificing. They're tired of life. They, they're looking for something beyond what they have. So, yeah, this, it, these, these ideas oftentimes, the reason they're romanticized these days at least, or the, for these concepts at least, terrorism or, you know, extrajudicial killing, it's hypocritical and it's it's because we have a huge history of it being honorable. And maybe there was a time where it was, but today is not that time. Mm. Why is this love being, uh, you know, portrayed in this way? Number one, I talk directly to people because uh, of my connections, Khatman Abuwad, with Jamaat Islami, with Ahrar people. The people who were behind the law, they thought first because I came in connection with Jamaat, they thought I was from the Jamaat, so I was one of them. So they revealed very clearly to them that they lied. And their thing was that we have to fight these new human rights, secular ideas that Zia had finally given. Zia, by the way, did not make the law. Zia was against the law, probably because of some U.S. Republican pressure, which were giving them dollars for Afghanistan. So on the floor, Zia's government said, we don't need another blasphemy law. So that's a rhetoric that's been wrong for a while, Zia's law. So, But Zia had given them a way of life, right, from the 80s onwards, which was not as similar as what Pakistan was before that. And all of a sudden, all these uh, people who do not represent the majority of community felt threatened. So Asma Jahangir would come in and talk about evidentiary requirement of women. And God bless her, she uh, said that agar, uh, if, if it's half uh, evidence for women, then do this as well. And she, she was irreverent in the way she talked about it. And Essen Iqbal's mother, Begum Nisar Fatma, who was one of the architects of the law as well, her, Ismail Qureshi, Liaqat Baloch, who was a very young guy at the time, a very young Ansar Abbasi, very young, like 17, 18. These people came together at various points of 80s and especially late 80s. They were the most authentic thing that I can talk about, the thought leaders, not people yet. Because people, remember, there's an increase of 2,100% cases after the law is passed and extrajudicial killing, I think 13,000%. So after the law is passed, you would expect the killings to be lower. But you had, what, three extrajudicial killings before that and 75 after. So the law didn't do anything to bring order. They manufactured a need in people, starting with the law, then in the social, uh, then in the judiciary area, and then at the end, the social arena. The thought leaders, the only thing that I found authentic was an anxiety that our way of life is at threat. That these women, VAF, these 80s movements against, uh, they're going to bring in secular ideas. And I heard it from everyone. I heard it from Farid Paracha, Jamal Islami General Secretary. I heard it from Ismail Qureshi, that there is wisdom, maslihat, there's the greater good in lying about this so that we fight a greater evil, which is the secular elite who want to turn this country into something it was never meant to be. So that anxiety is real. The KKK had real anxiety. Uh, people who commit great acts of violence need something emotionally. Um, and sometimes we don't, we, we do add fuel to the fire sometimes. We do escalate. So in, in a common person, let's say, not a thought leader who's lying, but like now there is a real anxiety amongst people. So now I'm talking about people who are not aware of the behind the scenes. They do experience real offense. They experience real emotional injury, quote unquote. And an anxiety of what's going on. How is what's going on? I can't make sense of this world. I can't make sense of a world where someone can draw this, someone can paint this, or someone can wear this. All of those things. 
the the way that part's okay experiencing that anxiety is okay and they have that the way we have not allowed them to express that anxiety in any way because we don't have arts because we have not for example loving the prophet if planting a tree is loving the prophet seems like such a radical idea right now it's not it's never been it's always been a very common idea you plant a tree you pet an animal you've got you've heard stories growing up but you never actually see it happen because it's been obfuscated and manufactured that the only anxiety you need to experience is that these blasphemers these anti-state seculars are out to get your way of life and the only way to react and don't respond don't deliberate don't reflect react is through violence and the only and that is love and that's manufactured and people are eating it up and i there is a lot of explanation to it but that's the you know most i can i can really come up with in in this passage of time but there the, i have written about it sometimes uh there's a lot of psychological elements to it as well like people are sometimes curious as well what did he say they would go outside of the thana look if you're really that offended and you can't hear a word why do you want to know there's some kind of stimulation and high that they get off from being offended all of us in life is exciting you look at mob violence and you will see some people would be laughing children would be having way too much fun unfortunately so all of and this, this is not obviously regular uh, relegated to just religious groups this is everyone yeah. around the world is now enjoying being offended yes yes and that excitement that it brings to a maybe an otherwise really boring dull life without substance and meaning and all of a sudden you're like i have a higher purpose i'm protecting an, an honor of someone up there that i revere really severely so uh, my anxiety is uh that's my truths quote and quote and the only difference is okay sure that's your truth how you react and respond to it uh, it seems very new and all of it is very new mm. this is the most as modern the blasphemy laws the way we respond react all of these things as as modern as an american pie the more the most modern thing you can think of there's nothing and what they say claim constantly is the most ancient thing that 1400 years of history has been like that no don't 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 lie right yeah don't, don't rewrite lie. history for your yeah and yeah that's what they're doing they're revising history So that's why we live in such an Orwellian world because mm. these things are happening. Love equals kill. You're like what? Yeah. And this you're consistently taking terms out. Don't kill. Take don't out. Passing a law. No one knows about that's it. That's mad. I don't. I, I can't believe that that happened. I'll share the article with you. Yeah, please. Yeah, please, I, yeah. I mean, you, if you search "untold story of Pakistan's blasphemy law," you'll get the blog article, but also get the bigger report. and that lays it down with proof with substance it's been used by the supreme court as well it's, it's the council of islamic ideology signed it up that we're going to use it the ministry of human rights said we'll use it no one wants to use it it's it's like who's going to do it it's very difficult to say this thing but at least we felt that we used a language that was l- culturally relevant we weren't saying oh the law is against united nations resolution 57 and therefore freedom of expression requires us that blasphemy law should be repealed doesn't make any sense for you to say that why should someone care about a, about a resolution that was passed in 1948 for which people had no idea they had no they no one asked them if they agreed to that particular right they have no idea where that right comes from it was written by christian missionaries historically speaking uh, so why should they care they at an intersection of cultural and religious history human rights and constitution lies a language i feel that is indigenous even enough and principled enough that i think res- could resonate with people there's a reason i'm not dead 
And I've said very clear conclusions that the blasphemy law is wrong. I've said it so many times, so many places. But I haven't said it for the wrong and reasons and in process that sometimes maybe I think our progressive activists have done, which is that it's just wrong because it's against human rights. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. For the yeah. people. That doesn't mean anything. It's, what are human rights? What are human rights? Yeah. yeah or yeah. saying something like Islam doesn't have blasphemy laws. That doesn't mean anything. Or Islam is peace. Doesn't mean anything. So how did you get around how are you how are you getting around that? Because I completely agree with you. What is human rights? It doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. Yes. So get around that by finding out what, what does mean to people. So I remember reading a text by Qasim Zaman on authority on in South Asia, Ulama and authority. Um, that there's a mix that looking at religion not as religion but as history is very crucial, as a tradition is very crucial. So I remember there were a few uh, anxieties that some of the human rights activists had that are you playing in their pitch? Is this going to be religion versus religion? I was like, I'm not trying to interpret religion for anyone, but you, what they are trying to do is turn religion into a monolithic idea. That here is this religion, it says Islam. Islam says this. You know Ide how ideology. An ideology that has only one meaning, right? as opposed to a tradition, which by definition is a fluid competing thing. You've got like seven, eight opinions on every question. That's what tradition usually is, musical tradition, religious tradition. But when the moment you go like religion and Islam, you know, this new modern way of thinking, Islam is as if Islam is a human being and there will only be one answer. Usually, traditionally speaking, people used to ask, according to this scholar, what is his opinion on this question? Right. So you'd have that's why you would have eight nine different positions. So our approach to answer that question, what is what is human rights, is to figure out a what is the principle. There are a lot of academics who've worked on this, especially Anwar Amen from University of Toronto. Uh, he's the head of law. He's the head of Islamic uh, studies who looks into human rights and Islamic law intersection. So a that b, what does it mean for us to look into tradition historically speaking? So that we are not trying to tell people what religion is. We're trying to tell people what their tradition is. Because people derive a lot of authority from things that are ancient. And that's what got the blasphemy law its leg legitimacy in the first place. Hey, it's always been like this, by the way. And when you tell people, hold on, the opposite is true. It's always been the other way around. So that was one way, at least in this issue, that we could talk about. So when I present you 50 texts some brought in original manuscripts, scanned, translated in English, Urdu, and you can see it. And then you can see what someone else is doing. And there's no doubt in the reader's mind, okay, so he's not interpreting anything. He's not saying blasphemy law is right. I'm not saying blasphemy law is wrong. I'm not saying Islam says this. I'm saying they claimed that the punishment for this is X, Y, Z because all of these scholars from Abu Hanifa, Abu Yusuf, Tamar Tashi, Ibn Abidin, um, the founders of Deoband have said this. And then I bring those texts and I show it to them. It's like they had said the opposite. In some cases, something different. In some cases, opposite. Then there's not a lot to be offended by. There is a bit of anxiety. Okay, what do I do? Because it's like having a dream and then you wake up and you realize not, you, you dream that, you know, your partner said something terrible to you. And you wake up, you're still having that feeling. You know it's not true. So it's that you kind go, of state. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're still angry at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're like, okay, you're not saying anything because I am not, I'm just a literature review. I'm a vessel trying to connect tradition to a local politics and lo local religious, religious conflict. But at the same time, in spirit, trying to remain true and committed to human rights in context of Pakistan and trying to figure out what that means. And that's where Shahri came in. Okay, how do you bring civic rights ideas to the idea of Shahri? Because citizenship 
means a lot more in the West because of the civic rights movement, because of the slavery abolishment, because of the um, feminist movements, the women rights, and then uh, Martin Luther King. And But Shehri has always meant Bashanda. You live here. That's it, full stop. So partly, to, uh, what the second thing we wanted to do was blasphemy law as a symptom. At the heart of it is that we haven't really defined what civic rights are for us. Where do they come from? Why do they mean so much to us? So Shehri Pakistan was an attempt to imbibe the word Shehri with meanings that go beyond you live here. It's you, the state works for you. They serve you. Right. And these are your rights and you fi- you get to fight for it. And uh, it's not as aggressive as a brand. So what we started off is just an educational platform. But Hashia allows us to do the same with history then. So it, they're all connected in this way that with different editorial tones, we're trying to answer that exact same question then. Then how do you say it if not you're not going to say it's against human rights? Sure, yeah. I, I kind of thought we would go into this podcast talking about animation and like, oh, it's nice hand-drawn stuff. I, I feel completely out of my depth, but... Hmm. We're still going to talk about the animation. I'm here to promote my film as well. (laughs) But yes, please. Plug what you need to plug. (laughs) Um, But like, how do you... Actually, before we go into that, like, I think it's interesting you keep using the word anxiety. Yeah. And uh, it's easy to delve into like, um, or slip into like pop psychology when it Mm. comes to this stuff. Mm. Like like psychoanalyzing people like, Mm. oh, they're showing their repressed anxieties in this manner or whatever. But... The word anxiety, I think it is a really useful one to have at least because you do have like, everyone has this underlying feeling of something not being right in society. And I'm not talking about any specific law. I mean, just generally, right? You have general systemic anxieties, whether it's about climate change. You might not be like, it's climate change, but you're like, I feel like everything's going to shit. Mm. Why do I feel like this? Why do I feel like there's no hope? Or whatever it might be. Mm. So those anxieties do eventually end up bubbling to the surface in some way yeah so when it comes to something like share the bustam you you showed that anxiety as being this kind of cyberpunky kind mm. of uh society and with swipe you've shown it also with technology and you know all this other stuff so is that really what you're how do you see how do you interpret anxieties in society mm. and how do you stop that from just being sort of a kind of pop psychoanalysis being like oh that that then transfers into this mm, thing mm. i mean how do you, sorry how do you just stop from dumbing it down right right so yeah at at the risk of being reductive and just right yeah so obviously the anxiety so when i use the word anxiety it's also a, a term just outside of clinical psychology just a sense of conflict that you're experiencing in the middle but the good thing is that um, my ex-wife, God bless her, she was, uh, she is, she is an ex- exceptional uh, uh, psychologist with psychodynamic training, um, and she helped me a lot with she, our first one of our first paper that we wrote for Princeton was the psychology and theology of blasphemy and offense. So we tried to see it through. Uh, Damn, acad- you've been working on this a long time, right? Yeah, yeah, been yeah, a yeah. long time. That's why you know your shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least when it comes to this, I know my shit. Yeah. yeah. Is that why you're you're confident about it? Is that why you know the limits of uh, of discourse? I think so. Yeah, I think I I think time does that. Uh, also, I think commitment does that. Like, there's a sense of yeah, I'm committed to this, and I know that my in- what my intent is. I know my, what my deepest intent is. It's not. It does not come from an egoic self. It comes from a, 
higher need. Uh, so that self-awareness helps as well. So that, I think, yeah. But so we did that study as well, and we looked in, we did uh, uh, questionnaires, we did questions, and there's a lot of political psychology work uh, all over the world mm. that, let's say, gun control. Uh, gun, gun control. Gun control, yeah. In America. Mm. What do people feel when someone says that we're going to take your guns away? Yeah. Right? So where does anxiety come in that? Or cogni cognitive versus intuitive faculties. So what part of your brain, uh, they would do scans, lights up when you, when you listen to something that feels like an attack on your way of life. So there are neurological scientific evidences that point towards this being a reasonable enough um, thesis to make that one of the underlying sentiments behind all of this is at least fear-based because anxiety is a form of fear. You are afraid of something. You, and, but then also we coded language a lot. So when I did interviews, there was this, oh, someone's out to get us. There's a conspiracy. Uh, they want to take away this from us. And most of it factually inaccurate. So explainable by one by one of the things that explains that is anxiety and other things too, power uh, in some instances. So when it comes to filmmaking, one of the things is that it is important for me to first tell a good story mm. for it to be somewhat entertaining as it's well. It's not an academic paper. Yes, yeah, not a paper. That's the whole point that all of this from scoring and music and paper and videos and explainers and search video things, everything may be saying somewhat the similar thesis statement of egalitarian values and like, but in various ways. So first and foremost, it should be an interesting story. It should ha it should be visually, it should be a film, it's a film. And most people weren't getting this out of it at all what I'm talking about. Yeah. And yeah. that's perfectly okay. In fact, I would ha rather have that because mm. that hits at a much deeper, I don't want people to be convinced that blasphemy law is wrong through these films at all. Yeah. What I really want a lot more is them to reflect or where does that hit them? And, right. And sometimes it resonates with them being on the subjected side of it. So for example, certain women talking about how they feel, you know, being surveyed and uh, some students talking about toxic positivity at their homes. To the other side as well. Okay. Oh, am I, especially people who are on the fence, do I add to unfair violence or unfair violence or do I add to violence by something that I say that seems very inno innocuous on Twitter that, oh, that person is a Qadiani when I know he's not. Just uh, that happens so many times. So, so no, I, I don't think the film is even claiming to do that. So it can't dumb down something that it's not claiming to do. It does try to look into these anxieties, but not in an academic way, not in a clinical way. It's the same way, you know, uh, when you look at many, when you look at Mr. Robot, uh, the TV show, I mean, it's a cyberpunk film. The, and the director said, I wanted to make a cyberpunk film that does not look like what a cyberpunk film because I'm tired of flying cars. Mm -hmm. And I think the swipe is the same thing in some ways because it is a cyberpunk film without the neon lights, without the flying cars, because both of them are looking into how corporations can take over uh, and manipulate people. In this case, corporation plus uh, radical Islam, uh, profiting off people's sentiments. So that's also an exploration of people's anxieties, even the protagonist's anxieties, but it's not necessarily, I mean, although they did a lot of research, but it, the claim wasn't we're gonna be 
exactly talking about what anxiety is. I mean, I think some of the worst art can come out of that kind of thinking, yeah. right? Where yeah. it's like, I, I have this objective to do and yeah. I have to fulfill that objective. Yes. And that's how we, we just get to point A to point B. Um, how much of that is, uh, are you aware of, like when you're making like a new short film or whatever, or when you're working on these kind of projects, are you like, well, I have to figure this thing out for myself. And this piece of art is a way of me figuring it out. It's not like I already come into it with my thesis statement and let's just try and find a way to make this entertaining. Mm. It's, it's not like trying to put an academic paper into a film, right? It's, it's not. It's, it's not. more like, I also don't know. So how do we get, how, how do we move through this mist? I would say, I mean, in my case, in both of these things, it was neither of the two. What it really was, I did want to make, I wanted to make an entertaining film when it comes to Sherita Basum. I wanted to make a film that was about us. Now, you you write stories about things that you feel passionately about. And there was an idea, we wrote about it. For me, and I would never discuss with the team or the animators that this is what the film is about. That For me. Because everyone knew what the film was about for them. And even within the team, because it's a very collaborative production, both of these films. It's very different. I'm coming here and I'm talking about what it means to me. You're not a dictator. Uh, not at all. I mean, I'm anything but. They're asking that, me to true? be... Not <laughs> okay, okay. People are asking me to be dictators in the office. Come on, tell us, to, tell us to do it again. But I'm, I, I'm anything but a. I'm not a perfectionist. Hmm. Anything but. Best of yeah, I like, I love that attitude. I'm, I like failing. Yeah, people should be more okay with failing. Okay, more okay with failing, and even like when people come in and they come in and they, these are really talented kids. They come in and they're like. It's not completed. It's like, it's complete. It's like, no, no, this, you see this, this error. It's like, no, it's perfect. <laughs> if that's what you want to hear, it's perfect. And eventually a year down the line, they realize what the philosophy, the culture is and they're comfortable with it. But that's otherwise you're, uh, the more important thing for me is being authentic. Wow. The guy has a very big bike. He has a very big something. I mean, yes. <laughs> he yes. wants to show us. Yes, compensate yourself. <laughs> yeah. Let's let him... Uh, we get it. Yeah. Uh, but the more important thing than perfection is... Eight second, yeah, sorry. Yeah. He has to really hammer that point home. Yeah, so I'm comfortable with that. But when it comes to, obviously... Uh, so 6 out of 10 for PS Public Server Awareness Campaign. So we were doing... We did a lot of coronavirus animations for... Um, uh, countries outside of Pakistan, for Pakistan, for the government. No, we can't wait. Yeah. Two months. Yeah, this frame is not good. Let's just yes. keep working on yeah. it for another month. Yeah. Or like the, F, you know, what a Nikanama is. No, women need to know it right now. We're going to miss out. So on the other hand, the two films, however, the obviously it's a visual medium. So I did say, okay, we're nine out of 10 now, but the one is still left. We are going to end up making a film that is flawed because that's okay and that's okay as long as we are being authentic and I have to keep reminding everyone that and another way that I'm saying that I'm not a dictator and it's very collaborative is everybody does bring a lot to the table especially with Sharita Basum I mean Ismagul Hassan was the creative director visually just really tr made sure that it didn't become very derivative uh, as it could have by the end because of the, some of the textures it did still look like something that you don't necessarily see before the way things moved. And uh, with Swipe, again, with Haseeb, everybody brings something to the table. So the cases that you have on the phone, we're like, okay, everybody come up with a case. Something absurd, something funny, something hilarious, something really out of, that won't happen. So in that way, it's collaborative. It's definitely not dictatorial. It's 
it's it's it's an it's I think one thing that I can say very confidently. Uh, before COVID, we were training two people, and then co- the COVID was a real challenge to make sure that the team remains, and we did have to um, scale it down. Then we're coming going back up. One thing, anyone who comes in here, most of the people do find it to be a very nourishing space because we're not there for productivity. The process matters. Being nurturing and kind to yourself and others matters, and just remembering what 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 our intent is matters. And with this film, I was just talking to everyone again today that our deepest intent is not to prove ourselves as filmmakers. It's not to make just a pretty-looking film. It's to project our voice confidently in a space that's being shrinking. Just project it confidently, and that projection of our voice that is honest is a nurturing, nourishing thought. And that is a higher consciousness. That's a higher meaning. So, and and everybody's on the same page for that. That's my job as a director, really, mm. uh, to 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 bring that shared vision to the table. Mm. Why and how are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The what part is very collaborative. Mm. Are you optimistic, pessimistic at the when you look at the future of this stuff? I've I've so the first thing is something that James Baldwin said. Uh, someone asked him that question. Not that I'm saying I'm James Baldwin in this <laughs> but uh, it's. I cannot afford not to be. Mm. It's just not a choice. Uh, what I've chosen as a way of life almost. Like we locked our, we tested for Corona and we locked ourselves in the office, the five of us. And we slept there, worked there to make sure that we did, we didn't need to. No one was putting pressure on us. Clearly, to- toxic positivity. <laughs> you know, we did have some incidents. So I, I, it's, it, it became a, like a very, Everybody's just very passionate about it, and it wasn't it wasn't like an instruction on my behalf before you know um, any workers' right movement comes yeah. at me. <laughs> no, no, no. It was something that pe- people recommended as well, and um, we had a great time. It was a really passionate like uh, recommitment to what we work on. I cannot afford to not be optimistic. There are a million other things that we could do. We could just be an animation agency. We could be a think tank for World Bank. If we choose, obviously there are times when it's really, I think what fears, but I fear more, I'm optimistic in uh, overall in general. What I fear is losing earnestness, becoming more concerned with, oh, that's basic, that's artistic, that's forgetting what authenticity and being more about, okay, how do we look? Who's impressed? Who's not? Which festival are we in? Which are we not? Those are all secondary, if any, to forget the most earnest and the most crucial and what um, what I would call the most deepest intent. What is our deepest intent as opposed to an intent that comes from fear and ego and which is which, which is which is for everyone. Like, you know, someone has an imposter syndrome, someone has, you know, insecurity and all of that exists. And sure. But you're not here, we're not here to tell the story, to prove to ourselves that we are not imposters or that I'm good enough dad or all of those things. Right, right. Sure, those could be things that can happen in the process, but to remind yourself You're calling me out. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's for another room. You and another person in another different room. So what do you say to yourself in the mirror every morning? Because mine is, I'm, am I good enough, Dad? And I'm just, no, I'm just joking, obviously. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think my, uh, my parents, What's your I'm intent? strangely, 
my parents are strangely proud of me. They absolutely hate what I do because it stands <laughs> for everything that's against them. Right. But they also say everything Mashla that you've touched it's been successful and you've established it. Why don't you do the same? Why don't you start a channel for Quran? Right? And it would be great. And it's fair. Their question is fair. So in a way that validation I can derive somehow. I can still extract something out of it. That's something I do. If someone gives me a compliment, there's this thing that pe- people t- are difficult it's difficult for them to accept compliments. I'm very good with it. You can say something and you can and you don't even mean it, let's say. <laughs> I'll still take it. I'll hack it. Mm-hmm. I'll tell them it's like fantastic. And even the validation bit. So I don't what what I keep telling it's 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 so human, it's so wonderful to say, hey, this is, I need some validation. And we do do it at the at our studio all the time. We get around and we say, okay, what do you lo- like about this person? So everybody goes in rounds and rounds because everybody needs validation. I've come in so many times because I I would have a bout of clinical depression. I would come into the office. Listen, I'm not failing you guys, am I? So tell me if this has been a nourishing experience for you. And these 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 people in my team, they're incredibly loving and respectful, but they're incredibly loving. And so they would tell me, okay, and that's important for me, and that's fine. You know, that that experience and so that you get that out of the way, so that again you're not high limbically hijacked and you're not experiencing coming from an experience of, oh, I wanna validate myself, I'm doing this so that I know, okay, I don't fail them, that you're clear that you want to project an honest, confident voice on a space that is also yours. And that's the important part mm. in this case. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty uh, alien concept to me. Because mm-hmm. in the sense that like so much of uh, the creative process is driven from some kind of inner anxiety, right? Maybe the technical aspect is, is am I good enough at this? And then you work on that. So like... I know what you're saying. Is it just because you got to a point where you've like, I've received the compliments that I need to receive. Now I'm fine with the stage I'm at. Uh, I mean, early on in your career, was it motivated by some inner anxiety? So uh, two parts. Number one, I do experience all of these anxieties in different, in different things. So for example, in things where I perhaps am, am more vulnerable, let's say if I score the score part of it, because I'm not publicly known as a musician, but I've made a lot of music, but I've never really, and I've always wanted to, but I had to quote unquote sacrifice that to do some of these things. Now, when the music would come out, Sharita Basum came out and when Swipe's music will come out, I will, that will, so this is what happened. I, I was talking to the people, I was telling them about what is my limbic hijack I need to look out for. So I was like, I was scoring for um, Swipe mm. and I was, and I forgot that I, there was image and suddenly I wasn't scoring for image. Right. I was scoring for doing something fancy or a mm. melody that people are going to notice. Mm. And they're like, oh, who did the score? Let me <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the hijack, that's anxiety. Right. And that's always going to be there. Um, there's this brilliant woman, Tara Brach, who's a, a PhD psychologist as well as a Buddhist philosopher who talks about this idea that it is going to come in, who talks about limbic hijack and the higher consciousness. And she's talked about it, it's going to happen. Then you're going to just... A, be kind to yourself about that. It's okay. I have this anxiety. It's human to have that anxiety. You're not going to be like, oh my God, why do I have this anxiety? Mm. Why am I now not a higher consciousness? Why am I not <laughs> yeah. in Nirvana? Why am I not a Buddhist? No, right. that's not that. So being Hello. A, yeah. Time's running. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, it's okay. It's okay that I wanted to make a melody that was more like, oh, oh this is this is Pakistan's Trent Reznor. That that <laughs> came to me because yeah. I, I had this idea and was working. I was like, oh, this sounds like a Desi Trent Reznor with the blast thing, man. 
then I cut it out because <laughs> it wasn't serving the high purpose. So, but the earlier part of my career, um, career quote unquote journey, I think was driven by a lot of anxiety and anger. Yes, because there was an inner conflict A that I was trying to resolve, trying to find my identity in a way that was driven by anger. How could you lie? So if I had to make a documentary at that time, it would be a very gotcha documentary. Oh, you were lying, weren't you? Mm. I got you. Mm. Now, if I were to make a documentary, I would still give them a margin space to have some kind of self-respect. Right. That difference, I think, came from really staying committed to a singular vision. Even if the things that we work on is very broad, there is something singular that I come back to every day. And there is the culture that's very crucial, that it's kind. So if you're going to be kind to yourself and you're going to be kind to others and you reinforce that constantly in the office environment because work is what you make of it. So the capitalist system has told us this is work is supposed to be 9 to 5 high productivity, but the process matters and what productivity, how we define it matters. So if with kindness and nourishment, we can do that to each other, eventually we might be able to extend that A to ourselves, which is difficult, and then to what, who we otherize. So can you empathize with Qadri and do you need to? Do you need to understand how a Qadri is made in this country? Do you need to empathize with millions of children right now who have no exposure to things that you and I have? And the only thing that they know is what that way, that thing, same thing that they sing every day in the morning, Gustafi Rasul ki ek Can you empathize? And what's that line? Where do you refuse to empathize? Where does it become that Hannibal TV season where you're empathizing with someone who's a serial killer? And you know, become, or you become apologetic for people who don't deserve it. Yeah. So it's, it's all connected in that sense. But yeah, I, I have experienced that anxiety. I do continue to experience it. Even though I was coming in here, I was, I was thinking, oh, what am I gonna say? You know, wonderful people have come here. And uh, what does it mean for me to be here talking to you? Um, I usually wouldn't, for this precise reason, because we wanted to be to be an institution, I wouldn't come on television. People would call me on television because the article was very popular, and I was like, I wouldn't come on television because a, it's very easy to fall into the trap of becoming a face. Mm. Oh, here's the person who's an activist who's going to change the blasphemy law, as opposed to an institution right. which is bigger than me. Right. So I want to retire, and um, you know, I'm, I can't name her because she she's not sure if she wants to. She's going to take over. Someone else is going to take over, and that's an institution. I'm going to move on to something else, maybe. And that, as long as I keep a check on that, that this is not just about me even being here, is more than just trying to tell people, hey, listen, I'm a musician as well. Because I did want that. Right. Even I did now? Want that. I mean, a part of me, yeah, does that, because I never got to uh, share that with people. Mm. And it's okay. It's okay that I want that. That part's, that part's com- I'm comfortable with that part. But doing that at the expense of what's more important at this point what's the collect- I'm, I'm representing a team of people and their hard work uh would be wouldn't wouldn't be that good yeah mm-hmm. right yeah so you like personal music is more personal to you i guess yes and that's where i'm most vulnerable that that's where you know validation or invalidation could get to me very easily uh especially uh, not the technical side of it but um the musicality of it or or oh that didn't do anything for me that didn't hit me or you know, that's not new. Hmm. Uh, so that's where I, I think would be most vulnerable because I think I haven't, uh, I never had the time to do a lot of it. And yeah, it's, that's where my most child self would come in, I'd say. I think I uh, we're going to finish on this point, I think, because we've already gone over time. But um, one of the things that I like most about music is that I don't understand it. Like, 
I have a literature degree, a film, you know, you understand composition and why things work and why things don't. Music, I have no idea. Do you have an I do you have like I guess after you've made music that magic fades away like that's why why I have no int- I would like to learn no music theory mm. but I'm also scared I'm like yeah once I know it I know the gears behind it and you see the how it works um is there do you have a, a thing like that do you have an art that you're just like I don't know how that works and I'm happy not knowing so I'm very I'm much more happy knowing the technicalities behind animation illustration color theory all of the things now the thing with music is there was a time so i had for a brief moment i had a band with uh, shorbanur uh, mm. uh, and we released a couple of songs as well including the last song and sharita basum is he did the song for sure yeah, yeah. was us jamming in the studio nice and so when i was would jam with him it was like let's start writing music together let's learn notific uh, you know um, notations uh, let's learn functional harmony because for him it it was very intuitive his his harmonic knowledge is vast and mine wasn't so i did try forcing so i do obviously know a lot of music theory but when i tried forcing it a little bit i think i lost started losing authenticity mm-hmm. more than not having fun i started losing authenticity because the thing is as a poet if you're as a there's there's prose and poetry that you'd read it doesn't have to use every word in the dictionary so right. you you can have Let's say you have the you have fifty thousand words that you know of, and someone else has five hundred thousand words that they know of. Both of them can write beautiful poetry and beautiful prose. It's the same thing with music. Like Brian Eno made wonderful music, and it's not like diminished ninths and whatever. And <laughs> it's it's and similarly, there are beautiful musicians who do that precisely because they know music theory. And then there's some very gifted individuals who do everything but have no idea how it came and they're just gifted yeah. but for me i do i do start try to keep away from theory so that i can be my biggest thing is i want to be authentic so whatever i say i don't care if it's simple i don't care if it's com- complex as long as it honestly reflects what i feel because at the end of the day if i'm not doing music for a commercial or let's say a f- purpose or for a project if i'm doing it for myself then i need it to resonate i'm doing it to reflect so when i played back i want to know more about myself because there are certain things that words cannot communicate oh so this is how i feel <laughs> and words betrayed me language betrayed me but music music never betrays me mm. hasn't betrayed me so far right. so i think that's part partly it that i tried to stay away from the theoretical aspect from it mm. of it arafat thank you so much for coming on that was a half went over my head but it, i mean not over my head but that was a out of my depths but that was interesting really interesting to talk about and i hope uh, people found it interesting as well thank 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 you thank you for having me and i hope that it doesn't end up being too dense or boring because definitely not boring but just like uh, a lot and i think i missed a lot of questions that i could have asked you if this uh, this would it actually could have gone on for three and a half hours but let's yeah. cut it where it is yeah okay thanks okay. so much dude thank you for having us thank you